I mean, we have the peace of God, but whether or not it rules in our hearts depends upon us, depends on where we're going to set our minds, depends on whether or not we're going to use the spiritual weapons he's given us to take authority over that, or whether we're just going to kind of accept it or allow the circumstances around us to dictate whether or not we have peace. We have peace. Let it rule in your heart and mind. And so... <clears throat> great, uh, great encouragement to us to grow in that authority. How many of you know you're not done growing? Yeah. How many of you know your spouse is not done growing? Shh, don't say anything. Okay, just I shouldn't have even said that. Um, <laughs> we're in part 20 of Trust the Story, and we're going to keep plowing through. If this is your first time here, praise God. Um, hopefully you'll still be able to, to catch what we're talking about if you're first time tuning in. Um, we have been in a series that's really all about understanding the story God has been telling since the beginning. You know, a lot of times when we study the Bible, we, we sometimes don't make sense of, you know, well, how does this fit with this and how does this apply to this? And it seems so disjointed. And yet I believe as we really look into the scriptures and we study the scripture in the context of which it was written, uh, we actually begin to see the story God has been telling all along. And so today is going to be a part of that. Today we're going to go to Acts chapter 20. So if you've got your Bible, Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to be. We've been using a book by Frank Viola called The Untold Story to help us put the scripture into context. Um, I don't know if you knew that the way the, the Bible books are arranged in your Bible, um, they're not arranged in the order they were written. They're actually arranged in order of size. So because Paul wrote most of them, Romans comes first. It's the biggest of his letters, then Corinthians, and then Galatians. And so they go in order of that. And then, you know, Hebrews and then James and then Peter and then John, if I've got my books in order in my head. And so they're not written in the order in which they were written. And we've been so it seems like we've been bouncing around between letters, um, but we really haven't. We've been trying to go through the book of Acts and see where these letters were written, why they were written, who they were written to. So this coming week, we're reading pages 128, 129 in the book. And the book of Romans, 16 chapters of the glorious book of Romans. And I'd encourage you to read it more than once this week. In fact, I'd encourage you to read it from different translations this week. And really try at least once to read it in its entirety in one sitting. Not when you're in bed, you know, fighting sleep, but when you're alert Try to read the entire book of Romans with your mind engaged. Now, if you're a parent of small children, this will be harder for you than others. But um, try this week, book of Romans. Let's get into it, and we're going to talk about it next week. So this week, though, we're going to talk about words to live by. Words to live by. And we're going to look at a short story from Acts chapter 20. Um, this is Paul on his third apostolic journey or third missionary journey, whichever you want to call it. We've put maps on our, our website and they're in the book so you can kind of see where Paul went. We know that he's been in Ephesus for about two years, maybe even longer. And during the time he's been in Ephesus, there were these riots. Remember we talked about during Compelled by the Spirit, um, what we should do about that. 
Um, he's written the book of 1 Corinthians. He's written the book of 2 Corinthians. He's written the book of Romans. Then he's actually visited Macedonia and Greece and Corinth. And now in verse 7 of chapter 20, he's come to Troas. Okay? He's on his way back to Jerusalem. So he's going to be in Troas, and then he's going to come back through Ephesus, and then he's going to go on to Jerusalem, ultimately be arrested and end up in Rome. Okay, so that's where the book of Acts is going to take us. But we're going to read this short story right here, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. <clears throat> on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Now, remember, Luke is writing this. So when Luke says, we came together, he's in the room, okay? Because there were times, remember, Luke was sent by Paul to another city, but he's here. He's with Paul in Troas, first day of the week. Interesting, first day of the week, not the Sabbath, not the last day of the week, but first day of the week, they're coming together, <clears throat> and they came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Midnight. I'm waiting for an amen so I can keep talking to midnight. Okay, I'm not going to get it. So, Paul, remember what we know about Paul? He's not a real good speaker. Not a real good public speaker. That's the criticism. And he doesn't deny it. Okay? He's not an articulate speaker. He's not real good. So, midnight. Yeah. Okay. There were many lamps in the upstairs room, and seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus. Now, Eutychus's name means lucky or fortunate. <laughs> I don't know. So, here's Eutychus. And how many of you have ever had this? Who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. I mean, I don't care who the speaker is. I don't care how animated they are. I don't care if it's your favorite teacher. We all know this battle. And it's not because we're bad people. It's not because we're not good Christians. It's not because we don't love the Bible. Sometimes the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. So, and oddly, there's a rabbinic tradition that says if you nod off while your rabbi's teaching, that's totally acceptable. But if you fall fast asleep, that's sin. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. It's just interesting. So look what he's sinking into a deep sleep. He's got to fight this. He's got to do something. Come on. You come on, Eutychus. And when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Well, he sinned because he didn't fight it. He fell fast asleep. He fell out of the window and he was picked up dead. However, Paul did not follow that rabbinic teaching. He ran down. He threw himself on the young man, put his arm around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Now, how many of you know that's a good day? I mean, and by the way, for all my preaching friends who might be watching online, if you're going to preach on and on and on and on, you better be able to raise the dead too. So that's just a side note because if you want to go long, you better have the power to raise the dead too. So he goes back upstairs and look at this. They broke bread and ate, broke bread and ate after talking until daylight. <laughs> daylight. He left. The people then took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Now, the interesting thing about this passage here, 
Um, we all like this. And when I read it, when I see this breaking bread and eating and raising the dead and speaking until midnight, one of the things we want to do is be careful not to romanticize the story. We tend to do this. We tend to look at the scriptures and think every day with Jesus was just like, wow, fabulous, fantastic. There was never a down day. The disciples never woke up crabby. They never woke up like, oh, it was just, I mean, false. Okay, we've even talked about the book of Acts and how long this is. There were periods in the book of Acts where they had to persevere, where they had to persist. There were times where it wasn't easy for them. Even Paul, as we've looked at, there were times he despaired even of life. There were struggles. It wasn't like every day was a great day. When our global partners come back from overseas and they sit here and they tell us about the stories that God is doing, they don't tell you about, you know, the day-to-day -day routine and all of that because that doesn't get you to give. They tell you the high points. They tell you the salvations. They tell you the miracles. And sometimes we're like, wow, those, those global partners, man, they are so, they live such an exciting life. False. They live a life much like us, a day-to-day -day grind, and God breaks into it because they're there on purpose. And so we, too, need to live on purpose so that God breaks into our daily lives, but we shouldn't be like, oh, well, I've never raised the dead or I've never seen that miracle. And It didn't happen every day, but it did happen. And when I look at this, I'm like, wow, they spent all night engaged in the study of the word. Not every day. I mean, it clearly tells us that they were doing it because Paul was going to move on. And he, they needed to do it because he was moving on. But let me ask a question right at the start just to make us uncomfortable. When's the last time you and I were engaged in the study of the word for several hours? Crickets, 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 crickets. Yeah. I know, I'm like, ouch, several hours. And, you know, I'm a pastor. I mean, I, 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 well, I was in study several hours preparing this word. Yeah, but for myself, when was the last time I was just so hungry for the word that I just for hours was like devoted to it? And when I read this passage, it takes me back to Acts chapter 2. We go back to Acts chapter 2. Remember the church was born, exciting day, 3,000 got saved, they all got baptized. Woo, exciting. And then this passage comes. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. One verse, and then it's described this way. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who has need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, you and I want verse 43 through 47 to happen in our church, in our city, in our country, in our world. But the question is, are we diligently putting verse 42 into practice? Because I think verses 43 through 47 are the result of verse 42. And somebody, well, no, God's just going to do what God's going to do. Then why would he tell us to pray and not give up? Why would he tell us to keep asking? Why would he tell us if you humble yourselves and pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then I'll heal your land? 
Why? Because God says, you're my people. I've given you my authority. Praying in Jesus' name is not just tagging his name on the end of our prayers. It's understanding we have been given the full authority of Jesus Christ to live a life for him, for his kingdom, doing his will. He's revealed what he wants done on the earth. It's up to us to do it. Now, it's going to be hard. You're not always going to feel like being devoted to these things. And if you're waiting for the emotion to get you devoted to these things, it's not coming. <laughs> I mean, it might come once in a while, but we have got to devote ourselves. To devote means to persist, to persevere in these four things. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, plural. That is a plural word in the scripture. For some reason, we translate it prayer. If you understand Judaism, they had specific times of prayer. Why were they meeting in the temple courts? Because they were Jews and they met for prayers. There were certain times that they prayed. There were certain prayers that they prayed. This idea of prayers, and we, I think our, our translators are like, well, prayers, Jewish, well, we just need to be devoted to prayer, singular. Okay, if that's the context we want to look at it in, but let's at least understand what they're devoted to. They're devoted to all kinds of prayers at all times in all places. And I think that's what we should be devoted to as well. So, let's look at these. Let's be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Matthew 28, Jesus tells his apostles, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now, I, I used to believe that Matthew 28, Jesus said that, and then he disappeared. He, like, you know, was floated up. But if you actually read the context of Matthew 28, he is not on the Mount of Olives when he makes that statement. He's actually north in Galilee. So after his resurrections, he tells his apostles, go back to Galilee. He makes them take a several-day trek all the way back through Galilee, all the way through Jerusalem, I mean, all the way through Israel, all the way up to Galilee in the north. Then he meets them in Galilee, does a lot of stuff up there, remember? He has that whole moment with Simon Peter, and then he gives them this phrase. It's as if Jesus is saying, I want you to take a journey all the way back through the, the land of Israel, and I want you, as you take that journey, to think about everything we've talked about over the last three years. And then he brings them to that place. He gives them this command. Then he sends them all the way back to Jerusalem. So crazy. Um, and for us, it's no big deal. Hop in the car, but this is a, almost a week's journey all the way back to Jerusalem, where at the Mount of Olives, he disappears from their sight. So context is important. But Jesus says, I want you to teach these new disciples everything I have commanded you. He's reminding them of everything he's commanded them, everything that he's taught them. And so when we're told to, to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the reason I think that we're told to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching is because the apostles were with Jesus. They understood who Jesus was. They understood the teachings of Jesus. Even Paul himself was taught by the resurrected Jesus. He tells us that. And so I think this is important because the Bible is a Jewish book written by Jewish men, maybe a woman too, to Jewish people in its original context. And something has happened over the years, and we have divorced ourselves from the Jewish context of the book. This is, I, uh, okay. 
I don't know if you know this, but the history of the Jews, they are the most persecuted people on the face of the earth. Did you ever know that? I mean, all the way back in Egypt, all the way back through the, the Canaanite period, through the Assyrians, through the Babylons, through the, the Persians. Remember Esther? They tried to wipe out all the Jews. If you remember that story, I mean, through the Holocaust. I mean, and by the way, the Jews are not totally innocent bystanders here, okay? Sometimes they did things that provoked other people that actually tried to then annihilate them because of that. But many times they were just God's people trying to live and they were basically tried to be wiped out. We know about Nero. We know that Nero persecuted the church, okay, Jews and Christians alike, but he wasn't even actually the worst Roman emperor. Domitian and some that followed actually were harder on the Jews and the Christian than others. But then somewhere around 300 AD, Constantine becomes a Christian. And Constantine, when he becomes a Christian, it's so great because, yes, our, our leader is now a Christian. This is going to be good for us. And it was good for the Christians, not for the Jews. Constantine made it illegal to practice Judaism. He thought he was purifying the church. The, they, the church actually then began to persecute the Jews, kill them. Make it illegal for them to meet. We changed Passover to Easter during the reign of Constantine. And then if you study Jewish history and culture and you see all of the things that happen, uh, you understand that the atrocity of the Holocaust was able to happen because the church throughout Europe during the Reformation period and beyond didn't like the Jews. Martin Luther himself is quoted as saying this. We are at fault for not slaying them. I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in such, which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss and limb. I advise that the safe conduct on highways be abolished completely for the Jews. I advise that usury be pro prohibited to them and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. If this does not help, we must drive them out like mad dogs so that we do not become partakers of their abominable blasphemy and all their other vices and thus merit God's wrath and be damned with them. Ouch. Now, here's the thing. I don't want you to leave here today mad at Martin Luther. Martin Luther did a lot for us. You and I only have a Bible in our hands because of people like Martin Luther. But during the Reformation period, we have to understand that the Jewish context, the Jewish understanding of the Scriptures was lost. I believe because someone knew, maybe some power knew, that if he could divorce the, the scriptures, I mean, maybe he couldn't get the scriptures out of the common man's hand, but if he could divorce it from understanding it in the context with which it was written, we might never be able to fully understand what it tells us. I believe that this Jewish book needs to be restored back into its original context. I believe in that moment, we will begin to fully understand the scriptures in a way we never have before. I believe this is part of the restoration that God is doing in the last days in preparation for his coming. Bringing the Jews 
back into the people of God. You have to remember, as we've been studying the book of Acts, Christianity was never meant to be separate from Judaism. We were grafted into it. Now, not to keep the Torah, not to keep all 616 laws. We've talked about it. We don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to become Jews. We are Christians, but we are grafted into the story that God has been telling all along, and it's a grave error to divorce it from its context that it was originally written in. Paul tells us these things in the book of Romans. He reminds us that we have been grafted in, that we are branches that have been brought in. We are this wild olive branch that has been brought into the kingdom. He reminded us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that we should stay as we were when God called us. Were you circumcised? Stay circumcised. Were you uncircumcised? Stay uncircumcised. It was not incongruent with Christianity to stay Jewish. In fact, they considered it their calling. And somewhere along the line, we began to misunderstand the book that God has given us because we don't understand the the world in which it was written. Now, I'm not calling us to go back to be practicing Jews, but I think the only way we can fully understand that book is to understand the story that's being told from beginning to end. And it's not going to happen because we have a version Bible reading plan that we spend three minutes on every day. We have to be a people devoted to the apostles' teaching. When we talk about the study of hermeneutics, it's understanding the author's intent. What is the author trying to convey? Who's he conveying it to? What is the the audience going to hear? That's the basis for the authority of Scripture. We can't just go to the Scripture with our Western mind and do what's called mystical hermeneutic. Okay, mystical hermeneutic is where a verse applies to your daily life. Okay, I believe in mystical hermeneutic, okay? I believe when you're having a bad day, the Holy Spirit can come along and make your Bible fall open to a verse that just reverberates in your being and breathes life into you. I totally believe in that. I don't believe in the authoritative scripture based upon mystical hermeneutic. Meaning, I cannot just take what I want and apply it to everyone universally if I don't take it within the context that it was written in and then apply it. Remember last week I talked about how in the Assemblies of God we referred to the deadbeats. We no deadbeats allowed. Those deadbeats have a passion for the Scripture that put us to shame. They're not deadbeats. We need them in the body of Christ because their scholarly understanding of the scripture is so necessary for us to understand the full revelation of who God is. We need to get back to the author's original intent. In Matthew, um, I put this passage up there. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but I'll put it up there if you want to write it down. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a story about... um, a parable of the talents. And you remember he gave like five talents, two talents, and one talent. So random. Like, why'd he pick five, two, one? As a Jew, if I hear five, okay, five, what do I automatically think of? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five, Torah. Okay, that's what I think. When I think of the number two, what's the first thing that pops into my mind? The Ten Commandments, the two tablets. When I think of the number one, what's the first thing that pops into my mind? The one true God. So Jesus tells this story, whether you're a 
Torah-following Jew or a Ten Commandment-following God-fearer or just somebody who has a revelation of who God is, you know, that's, that's all acceptable. But what's not acceptable is for us to remain that way. All of us need to be growing. We need to be multiplying. Remember five multiplied got five more. Two multiplied got two more. One, oh, nope, he hit it. Meaning he didn't study to know more. Meaning he didn't take what he had already been given and apply it to his situation. It's not just about study. It, I mean, we can study the Jewish context of the scripture, but if we're not taking what we learn and applying it to our lives, we're not multiplying the word. We've got to study the apostles' teaching and be devoted to it in our daily lives and daily practice. And I believe if we, bring it, if, we, if we truly begin to understand the apostles' teaching and devote ourselves to it, we will love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We will walk in holiness. We will be holy as he is holy. And we will love our neighbor who is like ourselves. We will become devoted to the very things we're trying to be devoted to apart from that. That's what I think. And so I've put resources in front of you, and I've said, you know, here's the, here's a, the Bema cost podcast. Here's That the World May Know, a series by Ray Vanderlyn. Here's Windows into the Bible by Mark Turnage, which is a book and a podcast and, and an online study series. And here's some great books. If, you, if you're just like a, if you're a fiction reader, Lois Tverg, I don't know how to say her last name, but she's written a series. You'd love her. She puts it on a shelf where, I mean, if you... If you read Mark Turnage, Mark, if you're listening, I love you, but you're deep, okay? And sometimes you're hard to listen to. You're like the Apostle Paul, but it's okay because we need him too. But if, if you want to begin to understand the scriptures in a different context, I've put all these things in front of you. Do you have to do them? No, you don't have to do them. But here's what you need to do. You at least need to become a student of the word. You at least need to, when you're reading the Bible, start paying attention to things. I think the thing that would change our understanding of the Scripture more than anything else is if we understood the pronouns. Are you losing it? Yeah, pronouns. Where does it say you singular? Where does it say you plural? That changes everything. When Paul is arguing or making a point, and he uses like we, our, and then he's all of a sudden saying you, He's making a point where he's saying uh, Jews, Gentiles. And that argument changes the context of what he's saying. And we have misunderstood this because we're looking at the scriptures through the lens of people that didn't want anything to do with the Jews. And then all of a sudden in 1948, as if out of nowhere, <laughs> the Jews all of a sudden became a nation again. And the Six-Day War, if you don't know your history, study the Six-Day War, surrounded by all of the Arab nations around them that hate them, this tiny little Jewish nation who had just become a nation, sent them all home with their tails between their legs, totally humiliated them in battle, I think by divine protection. Mm, yeah, I think so. And so we've got to get back to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the discovery. I don't know if you've noticed, but a translation of the Bible that you had from the 1980s is severely different than the translation you have right now because we're learning stuff all the time. We've got to become a people devoted to the text. Pay attention to the footnotes. 
The footnotes are there for a reason. And don't just read the one verse where that footnote is contained. Read the book where that footnote is contained. Read the passage where that footnote is contained. I believe we do a great disservice to the book of Revelation because we don't understand the books of Zechariah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah and how they relate to the book of Revelation. We don't understand what apocalyptic literature is all about. It's not about the future at all. It's about hope for the present. Yeah, oh, lots of things, but I got to keep moving because we're going to run out of time. They weren't just devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. Fellowship. This fellowship means close association, participation, sharing. Close association, participation, and sharing. It is not just coming to a room and having a service together. I mean, that can foster fellowship, but it won't produce it. It's not having a meal together. That can foster it, but it won't produce it. In fact, we are in a season right now where fellowship is super difficult because we've been separated. We've been isolated. But here's the thing. Right now is not actually hindering fellowship, It's not hindering connection, but it is revealing where our connection was. When's the last time we picked up a phone to call someone that we hadn't seen in a while and said, hey, how are you guys handling this? How can I pray for you today? Oh, pastor, we got to get back in those church services. Why? We, I mean, yes, we do. We will. We will. I guarantee you we will. We'll get back to having church services. We'll be get back to doing things like that. But why not use this season to actually make sure we're actually fellowshipped, we're actually connected, we're actually in close association with each other. I've been in the church 44 years, and I've watched people leave churches because they changed programs, because they changed pastors, because they made decisions. There wasn't fellowship, but they were there every week. We don't want pretend fellowship. We want fellowship. We want to be connected. I've heard the phrase all my life, 20% of the people do 80% 80 of the work. Why? That's not fellowship. That's not close association. When's the last time you and I even thought about selling a possession to help someone in need? This is fellowship. We've got to be devoted to it. But in the American church, it's all been about come in, get fed, get goosebumps, get what I need, and go home. There's no obligation to one another through the week. As if, as if I don't do something to foster fellowship, it won't happen. It should happen. This is who we are. That connection. We can't go days without thinking about each other, days without praying for each other, days without picking up the phone and calling each other. Oh, this is so good. Romans chapter 12. Does that say Romans chapter 12? For each of us is one body with many members. And these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, though, but they all have a function. They don't all have the same function, but they all have a function. Look at this. And each member belongs to all the others. You and I belong to each other. Do we live like that? And this is a great season to start practicing that because it's harder. But I guarantee you, if we can become a body with fellowship right now in this season, when we get back in this room, 
fellowship will exist. So instead of being angry about it, I don't like it any more than you. We can actually use it to our advantage. Thanks, Marv. Love you. <laughs> We've got to get back to fellowship. Statistically, George Barner did a study. 32% of people who attended church services before the month of March, when all this started, 32% no longer attend or even watch online. 32%. Well, as soon as we get back to in-person gatherings, I'll get connected. No, you won't. No, you won't. You weren't connected before because this is revealing your level of connection now. I don't like that. You don't like that. But that's what's true. When we talk about Kidmen, oh, Pastor Tom, we got to start Kidmen right now. Parents, you are Kidmen. Everything we do is to support what you're already doing. And by the way, if you're empty nesters, start helping parents. This is what I've observed in my years not in this church, but just in my years of church. Man, kids, people today, they don't even know how to raise these kids. There's no respect. There's no this. There's no... And you know what I would love to see? I would love to see empty nesters. Instead of watching kids run in the lobby and then kneeling down and saying, you shouldn't run in the lobby. You should respect people. I would love to see us kneel down and say, hey, I want to bless you in the name of the Lord. I want to bless you with peace. I want to bless you with, with joy. I want to bless you with hope. Why do we always have to point out the flaws? You know, hey, get your, instead of, you know, going home and, yeah, did you see so-and-so's kids? They really need to know. Picking up the phone and saying, hey, man, you guys have five kids. I don't know how you have been making it right now during this season. I just want to bless you. Can I pray over you? Do you need a night out? Can we watch your kids? For see, that's fellowship. That's connected. That means from Sunday to Sunday, I think about what you need. That's good stuff, Pastor Tom. Keep preaching it. Because I believe we need diversity in the body of Christ. Paul tells us in Galatians, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. All of you were baptized into Christ. Close yourselves with Christ. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. You're all one in Christ. Here's the thing. I believe we need each other in the body of Christ because it's the only way we can see the full image of God. It's the only way. I cannot see the full image of God by myself. I need females, male and female. I can't see the full image of God. I need people older than me and people that are younger than me. I need people of different ethnicities. I need people of different occupations. I need people of different understandings of the scripture. I need these people because I want a fuller image of who God is and what he looks like. When I start thinking, I already know who God is. I just need me in the Bible. We don't understand who God is if we just need him in the Bible. He's never called us to that. He's called us to need one another in the body of Christ. Isn't that good stuff? Okay. But they're not just devoted to the fellowship. They're devoted to the breaking of bread. Scholars disagree whether breaking of bread is sharing a meal or the Lord's Supper. I don't know how it could not be the Lord's Supper because the two times we've read it, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 20, they broke bread and ate. So in the early church, the communion table was also a part of the, a fellowship feast, a love offering, a, like a, a meal, okay? I am terrible at communion. 
I mean, if you want to give me, like, the worst thing I do is communion. And Desiree Glanzer used to be the one to remind me we haven't taken communion in, like, forever. We need to do it more than we do. Let me just confess to you. Because this table reminds us of something that we need to remember. And when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he's talking about sexual immorality. He's talked about idolatry. He's talked about all these things. And in this directive, in this directive, I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. Not the sexual immorality. It was bad. They needed to address it. Not the idolatry. It was bad. They needed to address it. But this one. The, the lack of concern, the lack of coming to this table and recognizing you need each other. This table reminds us, God gave me mercy. And the same mercy he gave me is the exact same mercy I need to give everyone else. Love your neighbor who is like yourself. If we just say, oh, I just need to love God, I just need to love God, and we forget about our neighbor, we forget about the people around us, we can't even love God without them. We need each other. That's where our love is shown. By this will the world know that you're my disciples. By how you handle the apostles' teaching. No, by how you love one another. Maybe the reason we're not experiencing revival in our nation is because churches have failed to model this more than anything else. We need to come to the Lord's table because this table reminds us how broken we were, how broken we are apart from him, and how much we need one another. The table is such an important part of the scripture. Jesus' table, his table fellowship. If you look at the life of Jesus, he totally lived out Luke chapter 15. The more I study the table in the scripture, the more my mind is blown by what the table represents for us. There is a, a thing in the, the Jewish context called a reconciliation feast. So if you and I are at odds, you've sinned against me, then I call for a feast or you call for a feast. And until I raise the first cup and drink it, the reconciliation feast is in question. But the moment I raise the glass and I drink the cup, the feast begins and our odds are never spoken of again. It's a reconciliation feast. Whew. So when Jesus, if you understand Peter's denial of Jesus, when Judas denied Jesus, if you had a chance to listen to the Bema podcast that I asked you to listen to for this week, they talked about this. When Judas betrayed Jesus, Judas was deceived. Judas was actually trying to get Jesus to show his hand. Judas thought Jesus was going to be a conquering Messiah. And all he wanted to do was force Jesus to be king. So when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned to be crucified, that's why he went out and hanged himself. He didn't expect that. He didn't want that. Deception. Peter willfully and knowingly rejected his rabbi. You don't recover from that. As a Jewish Talmud, as a disciple of a rabbi, if I publicly deny you, I'm not coming back to be your disciple again. You don't return. So when Mark says, go tell the disciples and Peter, that's because Peter was gone. No disciple for Peter. But Jesus says, oh yeah. 
And what does Jesus, what does Jesus do? Go to Galilee. I'm going to meet you there. And what does he prepare for Peter? A reconciliation feast. And he says, Peter, do you love me? You don't do that. So Jesus speaks to a church in Laodicea, a church in the book of Revelation. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. That's a church. And Jesus says, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That tells me, as a church, we could think of ourselves one way, and Jesus have a totally different opinion of how we're living. Possible. Very possible. I rebuke those whom I love. I rebuke and I discipline. So if you and I are never being rebuked and disciplined by the Lord, he doesn't love us, or we're not listening. Okay, because he's going to keep doing that. We have to do this. Be earnest and repent. Repent doesn't mean cry, shed a tear. It means change the way you live. That's what repent means. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And you know what we do? When we give an evangelistic sermon, we're like, Jesus is standing at your heart's door knocking. But only John is writing to a church, not to the lost. And what does Jesus say? If you repent, what's he going to do? He's going to come in and eat with you. He's not going to come in and scold you, reprimand you. He's going to prepare a reconciliation feast because he wants you. <laughs> he wants relationship with us. Devoted to the Lord's table. Devoted to breaking of bread. And the last one, being devoted to prayers. In my 22 years of experience, the thing that is the hardest to get people to participate in is prayer. Statistically, overwhelmingly, people today believe in prayer more than they ever have before in American history. Can you believe that? I've, I found that hard to believe, but George Barna, at least, tells us people believe in the power of prayer. Yet, we practice it less than we ever have before. Isn't that crazy? We believe in it, but we don't practice it. And Jesus tells us to continue to ask and to continue to seek and to continue to knock. Have absolute shameless audacity when we're praying. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told his disciples a parable that they should always pray and not give up. There's a, a movement that started in England 20 years ago or more, way more, in the 90s. The 24-7 prayer movement, based off of Luke chapter 18, praying day and night. 24-7 prayer movement that is sweeping the nation. Places like IHOP, places around the world, IHOP Kansas City, IHOP Atlanta, all around the world, people are committing themselves to day and night prayer, believing God responds to his people's prayer, that God has said, hey, here's what I want you to do, and what I want you to do is, is ask me to do it first. Now, we can't, oh yes, we can't just pray. We need to act. We need to, to take action. I totally agree, but we need to pray first or with our action. Can I tell you, our nation, if the church in America took seriously the call to humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, and, and repent of our own sin, we'd see worldwide revival. Worldwide revival. I think that could happen in our nation and around the world. I, I, I really do. I just don't think we're convinced enough that that's how it happens. 
engage in prayer. There's so many ways to engage. The 714 prayer movement. I've been putting out a prayer list every week. Have you looked at it, the prayer list, the 714? Set your alarm, 714 a.m., 714 p.m. Pray for God to to heal our nation. Pray for God to do a work in our country and our world. Pray for God to heal COVID. Pray for all of it. I don't care what your political opinions are. Pray for God to heal. Pray for God to restore. All it takes is one minute twice a day. That's the bare minimum. You and I could do that. House of prayer. Oh, Pastor Tom, house of prayer on Zoom. Well, that's just, you know, it's not the same. Well, let me, let me tell you something. 22 years, 22 years I've been pastor here. We've had prayer meetings on just about every night of the week except Thursday. I don't know why we've never had prayer meetings on Thursday, but we never have. Sunday nights we've had them. Saturday nights we've had them. Friday nights we've had them. Monday nights we've tried Tuesday nights. We've tried Wednesday nights. We've tried every night. And all the time, People tell me why they can't come. Well, you know, I just can't pray in a corporate room. I can't just pray in a big gathering. Well, I can't pray. It's too cold. I can't pray. It's too hot. I can't pray with music. I can't pray without music. I can't pray with music with words. I can't. Oh, if only I could conduct the perfect prayer meeting, everyone would come. No. There's always an excuse to not pray. And here's the thing. Sometimes we've met for prayer in this room over here. And there have been times I've come, and man, I leave thinking, I love prayer meetings. They're so encouraging. They're so great. And then there are times where I go home, and I'm like, I hate prayer meetings. They're so dry. They're so... And you know what? Both prayer meetings are equally effective. (laughs) Because I inquired of God as he told me to, and I did. In fact, the ones I hated were probably more effective. Because we're the one where he gives grace to pray, that's easy. We've had Zoom prayer meetings where I've been done and I've gotten text messages from people. They're like, oh, I love prayer meetings. I love prayer meetings. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And there are other Zoom prayer meetings where I'm like, dear God, I just want the world to end. I mean, because that's the reality. They're just hard. But here's the thing. There's no perfect thing. Just get engaged. Just begin to be devoted to prayer like never before because I believe if the church hears it, we're going to change the world. We're going to change the world. There it is. If my people called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. If we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers... Prayers, plural. Literally, pray without ceasing. Yeah, you've got to have times alone with the Lord. You've got to have times in corporate prayer. You, just little prayers, throw them up. And so the moment you start complaining about something this week, what does the scripture say? Don't be anxious about anything. Don't complain about anything, but Pray. Wouldn't that change everything? Whether you're going to complain about your kids, your spouse, your parents, your boss, the president, senator, I don't care what you're going to complain about. Pray. With thanksgivings, ooh, petitions, all kinds of prayers. That's what Paul tells us. So here's what we're going to do. We're done. I want you to take your communion, your bread, your cup, whatever you have, If you have one of the ones that we've given you here in the room, you just have to peel that top layer off to get the wafer. And so get that ready. 
because I'm going to pray and we're going to partake in communion. One of the things I think in Pentecostal circles that we've done a disservice to is our understanding of the Lord's table. Uh, there are some churches that, that take this every single day and, and they treat it as a sacred moment and it should be a sacred moment. It should never be flippant. But we sometimes get the idea that we've got to bring the lights down, you know, we've got to prepare our hearts. My heart should already be prepared. And when Paul writes about communion, he's not talking about recognizing what Christ has done for us, this body. He's talking about recognizing this body. And every time we take this, we remember what he did. I didn't deserve this. <laughs> oh, I know what I deserve. Not this. But you know what's so hard for me to take this and apply it out there? Because it's so easy to remember, well, those people, they need to get their act right. So did I. And maybe we ought to do this more until we start getting that right. Because maybe this just keeps us centered. And there can be music or no music. In fact, you could do this every day at your house. Maybe you should. Maybe we should. To remind us of what he's done. Here's the thing. As a church, I think we're doing a pretty good job of devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. But I think we could do more. I think we're doing a, a good job of being devoted to the fellowship. I hear stories all the time of ways that you're caring for one another. We're doing a, a pretty good job, but the way that Paul said to the Thessalonians, now do it more and more, more and more. We're really doing a terrible job of coming to the Lord's table, but that's on me. We're gonna get that better. In fact, I give you permission to remind me we need to do this more because this is going to center us. Not because it's a mystical moment, because it's a tangible reminder. We need to do better at devoting ourselves to prayers. We're good. I mean, people come to prayer meetings. I know you guys are praying at home. I see the engagement. I'm not saying we're not doing any of this. But I'm saying if we want verses 43 through 47, let's up our game. Words to live by. And so, Father, I thank you right now that you have never treated us as our sins deserved. God, as we come to this table right now, we recognize that while we were your enemies, you demonstrated your love for us by coming to this earth, by laying aside every right and privilege you had as God. By taking on flesh, you chose to take on our weakness, to subject yourself to things that you never had to subject yourself to because you wanted to restore our relationship with you. So, Father, as we come to this table today, Holy Spirit, we ask you to remind us, to root us and ground us in that love that was demonstrated at Calvary but root us and ground us in it in a way that transforms how we treat others. God, that Restoration Church would be known by our love for one another. 
God, that even when we disagree on programs and disagree on, on services and disagree on preferences and disagree even, even at times on theology, God, may we model a type of table fellowship with one another, Lord's table fellowship, that the watching world stands in awe. But Father, we don't want to stop there. We recognize that we need the body of Christ in this city. We need the body of Christ in this nation. We need those outside the walls of our body too. We want that same love to be demonstrated towards them. And we don't want to stop there because you demonstrated love when we were your enemies. Holy Spirit, help us to be perfect just like you're perfect. So as we, as we sit here with these elements in our hands. Holy Spirit, remind us of that. Use this moment to center our hearts, to center our minds on how to live this out in our marriages, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our church, in our city, in our nation, everywhere we go. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for us. Holy Spirit, help us to live it out. To live it out before this watching world. Amen. Go ahead and eat those. Eat that bread, drink that cup. did that for us. He willingly did that for us. Holy Spirit, help us to be willing to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. As you've shown us how to do it, help us. Help us. Father, I pray for Restoration Church. In these days ahead, in these weeks ahead, God, in the midst of everything that's happening right now in our nation and in our world, God, we want to put our, our minds on you. God, we don't want to be distracted by what's happening around us. We want to have our thoughts and our hearts fixed upon you. God, we want to get our marching orders from you. God, we want to be rooted and grounded in your love. We want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Forgive us. Forgive us, God, for our lack of devotion to the apostles' teaching. Holy Spirit, increase that in our lives. Help us to discipline ourselves, to devote ourselves to the study of the apostles' teaching, your word. God, help us to be devoted to one another, to fellowship, to be concerned for one another. Holy Spirit, help us not to just wait for you to bring someone to our mind, Help us to go looking. Help us to go looking for needs in our body, how we can serve one another. Forgive us for the critical spirits, the judgmental attitudes that we've had toward one another. And Holy Spirit, bring us to a new place where we are devoted to fellowship. And Father, I repent as, as pastor of this church 
for not bringing your people to this table more often. Forgive me for being apathetic towards it in my actions. And Holy Spirit, give us grace to be a people of the table. (laughs) And also, may we be devoted to prayers. Holy Spirit, stir us to be a people of prayer. So thank you for your commitment to us. God, to be faithful to finish the work that you've started in Restoration Church. Thank you for your faithfulness. I pray your blessing over this body today. Would you bless them and keep them? Would you cause your face to shine on them? Would you lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace? Father, be gracious to them. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. Um, Our hosts are going to come and dismiss you row by row, starting in the back. And uh, we just ask that you save your fellowship. You're, you're visiting for out in the, um, the outdoors where you can socially distance a little bit better. And so thanks for being here today. God bless you as you go.